even though it feels like, you know, while we're getting vaccinated and school, schools are trying to reopen, you know, it feels, might feel like we're kind of coming out of this grand experiment. I, I actually, we are, we have at least two more years ahead of us. If you're an educator or involved in any way in the education system, then you know that we're living through a moment. And it's incredible when you start to think about it, just how interwoven our education system is into the fabric of our society. The COVID-19 pandemic has made this abundantly clear to everyone. I mean, if you're a parent, you learn new things about your child's school system that you never expected to know before. You might have been impressed. Maybe you were disenchanted. But you learned a lot. And you learned enough to know that just like all of the teachers across the U.S., you know that the school system here is changing. Hello and welcome to Learning Machine. I'm Sam Squalachi here with my friend and co-host, Nathan Levin. Each week, we interview a researcher, policy expert, or a mover and shaker in the world of teaching to help enlighten ourselves and you about our education system. This week, we're talking with Bree Dassault of the Center for Reinventing Public Education about the impact of COVID-19 and school closures on our education system and where this leaves us as we head into the 2021-2022 school year and beyond. Stay with us. Support and inspiration for Learning Machine come from you, our listeners. If you've got a minute and want to let us know what you think of our work, visit our website, www.learningmachinepodcast.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Yeah, well, you know, th- this pandemic, it it did push and force systems to create new solutions to novel problems pretty quickly. And something that I find very interesting is, is just that, that we all faced a universal challenge across the country, which is not usually the case. Usually we have these very localized um, challenges and so there was this opportunity for us to look out and say how is how really are is everyone responding to this moment? Brita So is a practitioner in residence at SERPI, which is the Center for Reinventing Public Education, a nonpartisan research center based at the University of Washington. We initially got interested in the work SERPI is doing when we read an article by her colleague Robin Lake titled "Public Education Will Never Be the Same," talking about the way in which the COVID-19 pandemic has forced teachers to make innovations on the fly uh, as a wave of school closures and switches to remote learning change things on the ground. Uh, we've linked that article and all the articles that we're going to reference uh, today on our website, www.learningmachinepodcast.com. Uh, check it out if you're interested. Bree's work for the center has been focused on talking directly to schools about the pandemic. And so for this show, which was born in the midst of this reckoning in public education, we wanted to speak with her about her experience studying the ways schools are responding. I started by asking her about the stark differences in this response from different districts around the country. Yeah, I think this year has taught us a lot about... um, how important it is, how important schools are, but also how schools play so many more roles than just educating students on reading, write, writing, math, arithmetic, et cetera. We, I think it's important to balance, in, in this case, students and families' needs for physical safety and, and health safety with their needs to, uh, and rights to have a quality education. So, um, you know, I think it makes sense that schools closed down when they did because we were 
um, responding to an absolutely unknown and un relatively unpredicted moment in time. Uh, what we've seen in the last year is that school systems have responded really differently than uh, in how they then continue to change or evolve what remote learning might look like or even modified in-person might, might look like. Um, so I, I think that school systems have to balance, um, they have to balance something like a, a, a global pandemic and, and what that means. Um, schools are, are at, at heart, you know, they're people institutions and they serve people and they're run by people. And so those people are human and they have lives and they've got to balance their kind of personal or their professional. But so, so I think there's a lot of understanding as to why school systems shut down. Uh, what we've seen in the last year is just that systems have, as I said, really responded in different ways. And so what we're seeing is that students have this really remarkably different types of opportunities or lack of opportunities now as a result of that based on how systems have responded. Um, maybe the last thing I'd say is that what we can tell is, is that systems are trying to respond to what parents and students want, but really what they want depends, you know, depending on where you live, depending on what you may believe. Um, regretfully, the health crisis has been politicized um, in this country. And so it created conditions that led to some polarization of opinions um, that then led to school systems making different choices because their constituents had different preferences. Um, so there's a lot at play in schools reopening. It's a lot more complicated than just um, reopening doors or not. As we spoke, we kept coming back to the fact that the way school districts are run is highly local. You know, it's tempting to think of the public education system in America as an institution, but local differences in culture, politics, and even climate make each school system distinct and unique. And even during the pandemic, when we might have needed a central authority, we stayed in what Bree referred to as a state of decentralized decision-making. You know, I think it's con contextual. So in moments of crisis, we tend to look to leadership because we, we're in crisis and we, we need direction. So I do think that um, a, very, a relatively decentralized system last spring um, turned to the Federal Department of Education for guidance and to the CDC for guidance. Um, and it, it took quite a while to get that guidance. I think the CDC's health guidelines finally came out in August or September of this year. So what it meant was that there was a period of time where uh, systems were looking for guidance. And, and I think one could make an argument for sure that um, by, by centralizing some way of orienting to this, you could be more efficient in how you deploy resources. You could, um, you could take a crisis and try to manage it um, with fewer people needing to be in charge. Um, I would imagine that after, yeah, as you leave or exit a crisis, a sense of crisis, you're usually folks will want to start to, to own and uh, control some of their decision-making. What really happened here is we just have stayed in a state of decentralized decision-making the entire time. And so with exception of the fact that almost all schools closed at the same time. So, you know, within two weeks, all schools and states across the country made the move to close. Uh, with exception of that event, we have just seen really different approaches. Um, you know, we saw, I mean, one example would be in Florida, um, a state that has 
um, hurricanes and natural disasters every year and is somewhat was somewhat more prepared for remote learning because they they know that students are remote during natural disasters. Uh, Miami-Dade is a great example of a district that schools closed on a Friday. Literally that next Monday, they reopened with a virtual curriculum. Teachers had already been trained in it um, prior because, not because of the pandemic, but because of um, other reasons. Um, and so while it was like a little bit rocky that first week, students still had access to, to learning um, without a break. And then you contrast that to other districts that may not have come out with any expectations or guidelines for six to eight weeks, that alone started a very big differential in what students were getting access to. Uh, and then you magnify that over the course of a year and all of the politicization as we talked about and um, just wide range of reactions to the virus. And you, what we see uh, is that we have really existed in a decentralized system and uh, you know that might have benefited us in some ways prior to the pandemic but it has really thrown a light on the pros and cons of operating that way. It was kind of mind-blowing to speak with Brian to try to appreciate just how different of an experience students around the country have had this year. In March of this year, Bree wrote an article entitled How 100 Districts Are Reopening After the COVID-19 Shutdowns. Uh, again, any article that we mentioned today will be linked on our website. In that article, there's a graph which shows the variance in districts' learning models between 100 school districts across the country. And again, you can find the graph and article on our website if you want to check it out. What strikes you as you look at it is not that there's a trend so much as a divergence in response between school districts as time goes on. Yeah, well, you know, th this pandemic, it it did push and force systems to create new solutions to novel problems pretty quickly. And something that I find very interesting is, is just that, that we all faced a universal challenge across the country, which is not usually the case. Usually we have these very localized um, challenges. And so there was this opportunity for us to look out and say, how is, how really are, is everyone responding to this moment? Um, and so in terms of what we, we lost, I, I think, um, you, you know, it depends kind of, I think some students and, and adults gained and some lost. I think it's very hard to make a, a general statement, but certainly we lost, um, what we sent lost a sense of normalcy for certain. Um, if you were, uh, you know, a kindergartner coming into the school system, I don't know that you know what school is, how, how the rest of us have defined it because you really haven't had it yet. Um, so certainly lost a sense of normalcy. Um, I, you know, we lost, uh, what I've seen is we've really lost a focus in the national dialogue on um, student quality of learning experience and student well-being. We're talking about those things generally as a need, but we're not really talking about what that looks like day to day in um, the district or school setting. And instead, what we're really seeing communicated about um, being kind of farther down Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's much more, much more attention is being spent on what learning model you're in. Is it remote or is it in person and how physically safe your facilities may be? Um, maybe you, you were learning about like technology and training and deployment of Wi-Fi, 
broadband or devices to students. Those things all matter. But as the three of us know, as educators, what actually matters most is what learning looks like and feels like. And it's been really hard. Um, as a person who researches this every day with a pretty big team, and this is what we do every day is, is look into this, it's been pretty hard to find information on what schools and districts stances on what quality learning can and should look like in this moment. Um, and also while we, I think are naming that student well-being more than maybe ever is, is very, very, very important to prioritize right now, how that translates into day-to-day -day experience for students is also pretty unclear. So, you know, I think what it means is that students' experience will be as strong as their individual classroom teachers capacity is, and then in many cases, as strong as that school's and that school leader's capacity is. But it's hard to find universal expressions of um, a standard of what of what learning and what schooling really means in 2020, 2021. Um, this school year uh, is, is, at best, I think we have a sense of what the, again, the cleanliness standards, what the technological needs are, um, but but we don't really know what students have been been learning and how they've been connecting to each other. Okay, so Nathan, I want to ask you kind of a strange question. Now, as some of our listeners will know, you're a learning analytics PhD candidate at Penn, formerly uh, at Columbia, and you're about two years into that process. But before you were studying education, you were a teacher. Um, and as I've been putting this episode together, I wanted to ask you, is there any part of you that wishes you could have taught during the pandemic? That's a really interesting question. And it's certainly something that has been on my mind during the pandemic. I've been doing research during the pandemic where I've gotten to talk to a lot of teachers and speak with a lot of administrators about their experiences during the pandemic. But I think, you know, on the one hand, I was a computer science teacher and computers were a huge part of my classroom already while I was a teacher. And so I think for my own instructional practices, transitioning to the pandemic might've not been as jarring as it was for a lot of teachers because I was already using Google Classroom, um, you know, using an LMS with my students. Students were submitting their work digitally. I was corresponding with parents through Google Classroom, through email. Um, so I feel like for me, it wouldn't have been as huge of a transition as it was for a lot of teachers and a lot of schools. But what I wish or something that I've thought about was that even during regular times or pre-pandemic, I was able to support a lot of my co-teachers in the way that they were using technology in their classroom because of my background with computers or my background with technology. I felt like I was sort of a resource, especially for some teachers who had been in teaching for a long time and they, you know, could sort of coach me on pedagogy and instruction. I was able to provide support in terms of using new technology. And so I think from what I've heard from a lot of teachers, those types of support, like internal to the school, those those like support systems between teachers where one teacher happens to be more tech savvy and is able to, you know, in the moment, just in time, provide support to their colleagues. I think that would have been really exciting for me to have been a part of a community of teachers pulling together um, and sort of adapting on the fly to provide the best remote instruction possible. 
But to me, the most compelling part of the conversation with Bree was our discussion about the fact that crises create opportunities, and that thanks in good part to an unprecedented amount of funding in the federal COVID relief bills, the possibility of truly impacting and maybe even reinventing the American public education system seems tantalizingly within reach. Something we talk about at SERPI is this idea of kind of a window of opportunity and um, the idea that this window is closing. And so the window of opportunity is closing, especially as students start to get ready to return to a hope, what we think will be a more normal, not fully normal, but more normal school year of more in-person learning. Um, and so we have been really talking about what does it look like to be a wedge in that window closing? What does it look like to like push in and keep that window at least cracked open so that that change can continue to, to flow? Um, and so, some states and districts are really thinking about how to do that. And I think that mindset is something that I would hope to see more and more institutions move to. This year has been a year of a lot of reactivity. Um, we have just been in firefighting mode all year, um, in part because we're reacting to a crisis that, again, was not predicted. It's not like something we could look out and be proactive to solve. But each of the surges and each of you know all of this year's you know political, we had a presidential election. We had, you know, incredible moments of racial reckoning. We've just had a remarkable year. And each of these big events have pushed um, school systems to have to react instead of proactively get ahead of things. So um, the opportunity, in my opinion, is going to be completely determinant on how well districts and school leaders are able to pivot out of a reactive stance into proactively thinking about what they want to get out of this moment and how to wedge in and, and not go back to the old normal. Um, I think if there's one thing um, I hope we can look back a year or two from now and say is that we did not go back to the old normal because it wasn't working for so many students across our country, um, especially students of color, students with um, disability students for whom English may not be their first language, et cetera. So what are some of those opportunities? I mean, there's so many, I, I will try to keep it, um, you know, contained to, to some of the, the most th the things that I'm most excited about. But, um, you know, one, I think that we are just talking about education um, in a different way. We're talking about student well-being. We're talking about student um, socio-emotional health. Um, we're also talking about students' need for racial affirmation and identity development. Um, those things, um, I think, have been scattershot conversations in the past, but they're just much more universal. And so um, I think that we are just seeing districts um, and schools take that more seriously. And I hope that we will see new curricular approaches and new pedagogical approaches that take more culturally relevant and culturally responsive and, and even anti-racist approaches to um, students' learning experience. Um, that's a huge opportunity, and we're definitely seeing districts give a nod to it, whether they, you know, are next able to integrate it in a systematic way um, is, is a big question. Um, there's some really, really neat opportunities and, you know, new school options or new schooling. And so with all of this federal funding coming in, um, systems are going to have two to three years to, um, I hope, create little R&D labs to pilot and test things. There's actually enough time. This is not just like six months to a year's worth of funding. There's actually enough time to pilot and try out some different approaches to things that may um, make students learning better based on what we've learned. And so there are so many examples of this, but you know, some examples would be high school. Um, 
why do we do high school from eight to two every day um, when high schoolers are often, you know, meet the threshold of being adults and um, in some cases need to hold jobs, need to help with siblings um, or help with family care, um, may themselves be young parents. Um, there are a lot of profiles of high school, may want to go to college earlier than graduations. There are all of these profiles of, of student. And so um, we are seeing some districts start to push into new schedules, new ways to staff those, those schedules, you know, even like say front loading the courses needed to graduate earlier into a student's um, high school career so they can have more time at the end of their career to do internships and apprenticeships um, or to hold down jobs or whatever it may be that helps keep them engaged in school and not have to drop out. Um, there are also just more creative ways for high schoolers because they're more developmentally independent for them to be independently directing their learning using virtual classes. Um, you know, if you happen to live in a remote or rural community or, or are a, a student at a very small school system, like a small charter system or a, a solo school, um, you may, you probably weren't getting access to um, kind of fringe or, or, you know, low interest courses um, that schools and students in big comprehensive high schools do. So now there's talk about, why can't students just be taking virtual classes online so they can get access to new content and new curriculum? Um, so I think if you're a high schooler and you're lucky enough to be in, in our decentralized system in a, in a school or district that's really thinking about being the wedge and, and pushing for change, I, I hope that you're going to find your experience looks different. I hope that you're going to find that you don't need to be sitting in a classroom from eight to two in a lecture style format for four years, but instead you've got options to, to flex and change that up. Um, I think if there are also some many, many opportunities for staffing and talent to look different, um, I, I really do hope districts and schools will play with um, their, their pipeline of talent coming in. Um, they've got, a, again, a couple of years to actually think about how they could do certification differently, to think about how they recruit um, more diverse um, and just folks from all different backgrounds to come into the teaching profession. If you think about how many nonprofits and community-based organizations ran hubs or learning hubs for students this year, that's a lot of staff who have been teaching students remotely um, in a remote setting who may be very interested, and I, I know are interested in, say, becoming a teacher. So there are opportunities to widen that pipeline. Um, there are opportunities to have like virtual professional development and and you know why do you why, same thing for teachers as high schoolers why do you need to sit in you know your cafeteria um you know an hour a week doing the same sit and get as everybody else could you have you know individualized professional development for yourself or virtual coaching or whatever it may be so um so again it depends on technology it depends on interest um but given the fact that teachers have all had to become more fluent in um, remote learning and in technology, and given the fact that many, many students now have laptop devices, so many of our schools are one-to-one -one schools now. And that used to be a luxury, that used to be like a pitch of, of you know, magnet schools and, and charter schools saying, you know, come to our school, we have one-to-one -one devices. That's actually, I hope, going to stay the norm in a lot of places. And so that allows a teacher to think really differently about what they can ask for in the classroom and then when students are back at home. So at a granular level, I think the art of science and science of teaching could change. Um, but again, you're going to need support and you're going to need uh, teachers are going to need to have time to grow and, and learn that um, with with more supports outside the system. So those are just a couple opportunities. Um, there's there again, there's so many more things, but those are some of the things I'm thinking about.
In an article published after our interview titled Hindsight is 2024, Brie asks us to imagine that we're three years down the road and that after all the money and all the possibility, we failed at making any lasting or impactful changes to the education system. In a pre-mortem, she tries to imagine the reasons why this might have happened. And I hate to say that we won't have time to get into it here. Honestly, it deserves an entire podcast uh, unto itself. And we'll link that article along with all the others we've referenced in this episode. But I wanted to leave you with this. There is a lot on the line as we head back to school this fall. And there's good reason to be concerned. But there's also good reason to be hopeful. So I ask you... Will we be able to keep the window of opportunity wedged open? That's our episode for the week. Please check out our website where you can find links to all of Bree's articles, as well as other episodes and information about how to join the conversation and support the show at www.learningmachinepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.